Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor, chapters 66 to 69. In the last chapter, the Spartans made their attack on Attica. In tonight's story, the Spartans are forced to surrender. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 66 The Spartan Surrender When Epitadus found that he was shut up on the island of Sphacteria, he sent a messenger to Sparta to tell what had befallen him. The Ephors were so disturbed by his tidings that they at once sent some of their numbers to the Bay of Pylos to see what could be done to set free Epitadus and his men. They soon saw that it would be too difficult a task to relieve the island, so they begged Eurymedon to grant a truce until they sent ambassadors to Athens to sue for peace. Their request was granted and the Spartan ambassadors at once set sail for Athens. When they entered the assembly, Athens, had she but known it, might have ended the war with honour. But Pericles was no longer there to tell her that to do so would be well. Cleon still ruled the assembly with his rough eloquence. Nicias, the leader of those who desired peace, although he bitterly disliked Cleon, was not strong enough to overthrow him. The assembly, 
urged by its leader, offered the Spartan ambassadors terms which it knew they would not accept. After rejecting them, as the Athenians expected, the ambassadors returned indignant to Pylos, and the truce was at an end. But Sphacteria was not taken so easily as the Athenians had dreamed. In spite of the strict blockade, food was taken to the island, so the Spartans were in no danger of starving. Sometimes swimmers, carrying with them linseed, poppy seeds and honey, reached the island. Sometimes helots, tempted by promise of freedom, would manage, when the sky was dark and the sea stormy, to sail past the enemy ships, taking cheese, meal, and even wine to the Spartans. In Athens, the people were growing impatient of the long blockade. When Demosthenes sent messengers to the city to ask for reinforcements, they began to be sorry that they had not offered more reasonable terms. They looked darkly at Cleon and began to whisper that but for his counsel, peace would certainly have been made. A meeting of the assembly was called, and Cleon, losing his temper when Nicias urged that peace should be arranged without delay, said, It would be easy enough to take Svacteria if our generals were men. If I were general, I would do it at once. Nicias was a quiet man, but these scornful words roused him to anger, and he retorted that if Cleon thought he was able to take the island, it would be well that he should go and do so. He was himself a general, while Cleon was only a leather merchant, but he was willing to resign in his favour. At first, Cleon thought that Nicias was but jesting, and he pretended that he really wished to go to the help of Demosthenes. But when he found that his opponent was in earnest, he declined the honour, saying that while Nicias was a general, he himself had no training in military affairs. But the people were not willing to let the leather merchant escape the consequences of his rash words. They shouted that he must go and prove that he could do as he said. When Cleon saw that there was no escape, he grew reckless and boasted that he would not only go to Sphacteria, but that he would take the island within twenty days and either kill all the Spartans on it, or bring them prisoners to Athens. Some there were who mocked at his words, others laughed, but all were glad that the merchant should go, for they were tired of his rough ways and his rougher speech. If he went, he might return with his promise unfulfilled, and his power with the people would be lost. 
If he came back in triumph, the Spartans would have been defeated. Before long, Cleon set out at the head of an army for Pylos. When he arrived, he found Demosthenes already prepared to attack the island. A large part of the forest on Sphacteria had been burned down by some Athenian soldiers. They had been sent to the island to reconnoiter, and while making a fire to cook their dinner, the trees were accidentally set alight. The wood had sheltered the Spartans from the enemy, and the fire spoiled their chief defense so that they were less prepared to face the army of nearly 14,000 Athenians, which, led by Cleon and Demosthenes, now landed on the island. Outnumbered as the Spartans were, for their army consisted of only about 420 soldiers and the same number of helots, they fought bravely as was their custom. But the arrows of the Athenians soon greatly reduced their number, while to add to the distress of the wounded, as well of those who had escaped, the ground over which they marched was hot with still smouldering ashes of burnt wood. At length, Epitadus, the Spartan general, was slain and the few soldiers who were still able to fight retreated to a hill on which was an old ruined fort. Here they took their stand, determined to keep the enemy at bay, and they did so until the Athenians found a path up a steep crag, from the top of which they could command the Spartan fort. Unseen by the brave defenders, the enemy scaled the almost precipitous path, and when they reached the top, they at once began to shoot arrows down upon the startled soldiers. But soon Cleon bade them stay their arrows while he sent a herald to the Spartans to bid them surrender. Spartan troops had never yet yielded to a foe. Ever they had conquered or fought to death. Cleon believed that now, as their brave fellows at Thermopylae had done, they would rather die than yield. But the Spartans dropped their shields and waved their hands above their heads to show that they would cease to fight. They begged to be allowed to ask the advice of their friends on the mainland. Their request was granted, and their friends bade them to take counsel for themselves, but to do nothing disgraceful. 292 Spartans, who were all that were still alive of Slacteria, then surrendered. 120 of them belonged to the noblest families in Sparta. Never after this surrender were the Spartans considered invincible. 
Cleon was now able to return to Athens, which he reached within 20 days from the time he left the city, bringing with him, as he had boasted that he would do, his Spartan prisoners. The Athenians rejoiced at the success of their army, but they laughed as they thought of the strange general who had led it to victory. As for the prisoners, they were glad to hold them as hostages. The Spartans would be less likely to invade Attica while their comrades were in Athens. Chapter 67 Brasidas the Spartan The Athenians were encouraged by the victory they had gained at Sphacteria to hope for still greater success to their arms, and in 424 BC they marched boldly into the country of Boeotia. At Delium they seized and fortified a temple sacred to Apollo. Now the Boeotians were indignant with the Athenians for invading their land, but they were still more angry that they had dared to enter their temple. They at once marched against the enemy and defeated them with great loss, but the temple was still left in the hands of the Athenians. As was the custom in those days, the defeated generals asked the victors to allow them to bury their comrades who had fallen on the battlefield. But the Boeotians answered, When you give us back our temple, you shall bury your dead. The Athenians refused to do this, saying that Delium, the site on which the temple stood, belonged to Attica, and they had a right to stay in their own land. If you are in your own land, retorted the Boeotians, do as you wish without asking our consent. It was easy to say this, for they knew that the defeated army was not strong enough to defy them. When the invaders still refused to leave the temple, the Boeotians determined to drive them away by setting fire to the wooden barricades with which the Athenians had fortified the temple. So they took a large beam of wood and scooping out the center, made it into a hollow tube. To one end they fastened by an iron chain a huge cauldron. In the cauldron they placed charcoal and sulphur, while to the other end of the tube they tied bellows, by which a strong current of air could be blown through to the other end. When this was done, the charcoal and sulphur in the cauldron were fanned into a great blaze and the fortifications of the temple were soon on fire. The Athenians tried to quench the flames in vain, and at length they were forced to flee, leaving the temple to the triumphant Boeotians, 
who no longer refused to let them bury their comrades. The defeat of Delium was followed by many other disasters, and was the beginning of the downfall of the Empire of Athens. Meanwhile, Brasidas had recovered from the wound that he received at Pylos. Never had there been so strange a Spartan as Brasidas. His countrymen spoke as little as possible, and what they did say, they said in a brief, concise manner. In later days, such short, pithy speech was termed laconic. This name was used because Sparta was also called Laconia. But Brasidas was not laconic. He spoke quickly and with ease, and while his comrades liked to do things in the way their fathers had done, Brasidas loved new ways and bold adventures. Spartans were seldom liked by strangers, for they were rough, often even discourteous in their manners. But Brasidas had winning ways, and wherever he went, he made friends. He was not only pleasant, he was also just, and strangers soon learned that his words could be trusted. This was the man who was now sent with an army through Thessaly. The country was for the most part loyal to Athens, yet the Spartans reached Macedon unhindered. Brasidas had been told that the city of Acanthus was ready to fling open her gates to him, but he found them guarded. He asked to be allowed to enter, that he might tell the people why he had come to their city, and they, won by his kind and simple manner, admitted him. His first words pleased them, for he told them that he knew how powerful they were, and if they refused to throw off their allegiance to Athens, many other cities would be encouraged by their example. If they would trust themselves to Sparta, he promised that their city should be free. But should you refuse, and his voice grew stern, and say that I have no right to force an alliance on a people against its will, I will ravage your land and force you to consent. And for two reasons will I do this. The tribute you pay to Athens injures Sparta by making her foe stronger, and your example will make other cities resist the claims of Sparta. The Acanthians were afraid that Brasidas would fulfill his threat and destroy their fields and trample on their grapes, which were now ripe and ready to pluck. So they determined to trust Sparta and throw off their allegiance to Athens. Brasidas was pleased, for, as he had foreseen, 
Other cities quickly followed the example of Acanthus. Encouraged by his success, the Spartan general now determined to attack Amphipolis, an important town in Thrace, standing on the bank of the river Strymon. Chapter 68 Amphipolis Surrenders to Brasidas Amphipolis belonged to the Athenians, who had sent Thucydides and Eucles to guard the city, lest it should be attacked by the Spartans. Thucydides had not only the city, but a large district also to protect, and he was at the time stationed with his troops at some distance from Amphipolis, while Euclid was in the city itself. Which led to the city was carelessly guarded. So when, on a cold, wintry day, Brasidas reached the river, he took the bridge without difficulty, making prisoners the few soldiers who held it. Messengers were at once sent to Thucydides to tell him that the Spartans had seized the bridge and to beg him to come as quickly as possible to protect the city. But before the day was over, Thucydides had reached Eon at the mouth of Strymon, but his speed was of no avail, for Amphipolis was already surrendered. Tempted by the easy terms that Brasidas had offered. When the Athenians heard that the city was lost, they were indignant with Thucydides, and chiefly through the influence of Cleon, who disliked him, he was sent into exile. The punishment was severe, but Thucydides was not idle during his banishment. He travelled from place to place, and everywhere he went, he paid great attention to the ways of the people and to the manner in which their cities were governed. He himself wrote, Associating with both sides, with the Peloponnesians quite as much as the Athenians, because of my exile, I was thus enabled to watch quietly the course of events. After having studied the course of events, Thucydides began to write about the Peloponnesian War, and he became the greatest of all the historians of Greece. After the surrender of Amphipolis in 424 BC, city after city forsook its allegiance with Athens. Sion did not even wait for the Spartans to demand admission. They opened their gates and begged Brasidas to enter. His presence pleased the people well, and when he had spoken to them, their enthusiasm knew no bounds. They sent for a crown of gold and placed it on his head calling him the Liberator of Hellas. Many of the people too, 
cast garlands over him as they were used to doing to victors of a race. Until now, Brasidas had fought loyally for the sake of his country, but after the crown of gold had rested on his head, he grew more ambitious to win fame for himself than glory for his country. It was his ambition that made him now do all that he could to keep Sparta from making peace with Athens, as she wished to do. Cleon, too, was eager that the war should continue, not in order to win renown for himself, but rather that Athens might regain the empire that Brasidas was snatching from her grasp. Two years after the surrender of Amphipolis, Cleon urged the Athenians to make an effort to retake the city. His rough eloquence persuaded them to undertake the task. He was himself appointed general and was sent to Thrace at the head of a large army. As he marched through the country, he took several towns before he reached Eon, at the mouth of the river Strymon. Here he halted, meaning to wait for reinforcements. But his soldiers had little respect for their general. Was he not, after all, only a leather merchant? What could he know about war? and they clamoured to be led at once against the army. Cleon did not dare to refuse to do as his army wished, and he ordered his whole force to march forward to Amphipolis to find out the strength of the army. Brasidas was encamped with his army on the top of a hill near to the city from which he could watch every movement of the enemy. When he saw the Athenians approaching, he ordered his men to march into the town where the Spartan's Cleridus was now governor. Where the Spartan Cleridus was now governor. Cleon at once supposed that Brasidas had taken shelter within the walls of Amphipolis so as to avoid a battle. Feeling no longer anxious, he left his army near the city, but not drawn up ready for battle, and himself rode carelessly forward to look at the surrounding country. Meanwhile, some Athenian soldiers heard the restless movements of the men and horses within the walls. Others looked under the gates and saw many feet gathered together. It was clear that preparations were being made by the Spartans to sally out and attack them. A messenger was sent in haste to find Cleon. The general no sooner heard the report than he hurried back to his army and commanded it at once to retreat towards Eon. To do this, the Athenians had to march past Amphipolis with their right sides unprotected, for their shields were carried always on their left arm, 
which was now the farthest from the walls of the city. The men had no confidence in their general, and they began to retreat in disorder. From within the city, Brasidas was watching with keen eyes the movements of the enemy. Suddenly, he cried, These men will never withstand our onset. Look at their quivering spears and nodding heads. Men who are going to fight never march in such a fashion as this. Open the gates at once, that I may rush on them forthwith. So the gates of the city were flung open, and out dashed Brasidas, followed by his men, as he charged right into the centre of the Athenian army. The left wing, seized with panic, fled. Claridus, meanwhile, led a body of men against the right wing, and a fierce struggle followed. Cleon, less at home on a battlefield than in the assembly at Athens, grew frightened at the unusual sights and sounds, and fled, leaving his army without a leader. As he fled, an arrow pierced him, and he fell to the ground, wounded to death. Brasidas also, as he turned to go to the help of Claridus, was wounded. His followers carried him within the walls of the city. He lived long enough to know that the Athenians were utterly defeated. The people of Amphipolis had learned to love Brasidas, and he was buried with great splendor in the marketplace. A temple was built to his honor, and every year sacrifices were offered and games were held in memory of the brave soldier. So deep was the affection of the people that they determined to forget that their city had been founded by an Athenian, and henceforth to count Brasidas the Spartan, the true founder of Amphipolis. As Cleon and Brasidas were both dead, the peace party, with Nicias at its head, was able to arrange terms with the king of Sparta, and in spring, 421 BC, the peace of Nicias was signed. The first part of the Peloponnesian War, which had begun ten years before, was ended. Chapter 69 Alcibiades, the Favorite of Athens The peace of Nicias, which was made for fifty years, did not last more than six. Lucidides tells us that it did not really last even so long, for although six years neither Spartans nor Athenians invaded each other, Yet they did as much harm as they could to one another. So that, says the wise historian, if anyone objects to consider it a time of war, he will not be estimating it rightly. 
Almost as soon as peace was signed, Sparta and the state of Argos quarreled. Each wished to get help from Athens, so each sent ambassadors to her. The Argives boldly begged Athens to join them against Sparta. The Spartans were content to remind her that she had signed the Peace of Nicias. In Athens at this time, there was a rich young noble named Alcibiades who wished the Athenians to make an alliance with the Argives. But the Spartan ambassadors had already been welcomed by the Athenians because they had come with full power to arrange fair terms. Alcibiades was as determined as he was angry. To gain what he had wished, he resolved to play a trick on the Spartan ambassadors. So he went to them in secret and told them how foolish they had been to tell the Athenians what great power they had, for the assembly would certainly rest from them more than they wished to give. When the assembly meets, tell the people, said Alcibiades, that you have no power, but that you will send their demands to the Spartan council. I will support you, and all will be well for you will have time to think over their wishes. The ambassadors thought that the young noble knew better than they how his countrymen should be treated, and they promised to follow his advice. So when the assembly met the next day, the Spartans declared that they had come to report only what the Athenians should say that they had no power to arrange terms until they had heard from their own council. No sooner had they spoken than Alcibiades jumped to his feet, and to the dismay of the ambassadors, he pointed to them with scorn, saying, These men say one thing one day, and another thing the next day. They are not to be trusted. Let us refuse to have anything more to do with them. The Athenians at once agreed with Alcibiades that it was useless to treat with such unreliable ambassadors, and they then made an alliance with the Argives. When the Spartans reached their own country, they told how they had been deceived by Alcibiades how rudely they had been treated by the assembly. And this, as well as the alliance which the Athenians had made with the Argives, was the cause of the second part of the Peloponnesian War. The Spartans were thirsting to avenge the Battle of Sphacteria, and to wipe out the memory of the surrender. When they met the Athenians in 418 BC, at Mantinea, they fought with the courage and the fierceness that had made them invincible until the fatal day of Sphacteria. Alcibiades, whose trick had been the cause of so much mischief, was the son of an Athenian named Clinias. 
While Alcibiades was still young, his father died, and Pericles became one of his guardians. He was a beautiful baby, a handsome boy, and when he grew to be a man, he was so brave and so winning in his ways that he made friends very easily. But he made enemies as well as friends, for he was wild and wayward, while his pride often made him behave with scant courtesy even to those whom he should have treated with reverence and respect. Staid, sensible folk were shocked at his careless, extravagant ways. Nicias distrusted him, but the citizens loved him and forgave him much, for he spent his wealth freely among them and often entertained them with public shows. They love and hate and cannot do without him, wrote Aristophanes as he watched the Athenians now cherishing, now chiding their favourite. One day, he was a mere lad at the time. He was wrestling with a playmate, when, thinking he was going to be thrown, he suddenly bit his companion's hand with all his strength. His friend quickly let go his hold, crying, You bite, Alcibiades, like a woman. No, answered the boy, like a lion. It was natural that so reckless and generous a youth should be surrounded by a crowd of flatterers ready to applaud his foolish and sometimes insolent acts. But Alcibiades had no love for these careless admirers, although he would spend hours with them at feasts and revels. His affection he gave to one whom you would scarcely have expected the young nobleman to notice, to Socrates, the great philosopher and teacher of Athens. <laughs>